0: Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Lori Benson. I think Lori can be thought of as a serial entrepreneur. But if we stopped there, I think we'd be doing a disservice to Lori and her work in our community. And as you'll hear us refer to in this conversation, by community, we are not talking only locally here in Colorado, but globally as well. Community is a richly layered concept that we're going to dig into today. Now, I recently referred to the Looking Upstream podcast as a local is universal kind of thing. I'm usually talking with guests who live locally here in Chafee County, but they bring a wealth of stories, experiences, and perspectives that reach so far beyond our little rural geography here. So I guess with Lori, we can adapt that phrasing to be a local as global kind of thing as we're going to get into some of those stories. She and I talk about her experiences with working on climate issues around the world and her connection with indigenous women and her work with mothers and children seeking safety and support at the U.S. border with Mexico. We talk about accepting life with a neutral spirit and the power of perception to shape how we see and move through the world. Lori shares about her current work, Inward Bound, which brings together women and highlights tools for women to recognize what they have to offer and to stand stronger in their own purposes. We talk about Lori's book, Leading from the Feminine, and her new book, which is forthcoming, among other things. Overall, I think there is a hefty dose of wisdom and ease and, of laughter and lightheartedness within this conversation that undoubtedly gets into some deep and meaningful areas. It's a good one. And now here it is, my conversation with Lori Benson. Lori, welcome to Looking Upstream. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: I know that you're in the process of building a house right now, and I'm thinking you've lived in this area for 15 plus years. Is that right?
1: Just almost 20 years. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, in my mind, that is sort of a a doubling down, a recommitment uh, exercise or process of some sort to say, we really love it here. And this is how much more we're committing is to start something new. That's going to be probably, you know, however many years leading into the future. So what is it that Hold you here, that you love so much that you're like, yes, let's recommit, in a sense?
1: Yeah, you know, <laughs> we, um, we've we always loved BV and this area, and it's been a big part, I think, of, the, of kind of forming who we are and how we move through community and how we see community. We did do a year away. Um, we were in St. Louis for a year, really? about six years ago. Yeah, my daughter went to a school out there for a year and Joel was a visiting professor at a college. and so we thought, well, let's try it. So we we picked up and um, moved our left our place here in town that we had lived in for 13 years, sold the house. And since we've landed, we were only gone a year. <laughs> since we've landed back, um, we had a really great spot, but it just didn't still feel, Like ours. It didn't have a little bit of land with it, and that's a big important piece for us. So, okay. Yeah, so it's pretty exciting to be, like you said, recommitting or committing in a new way that really feels like we're going to have a place here in town that's going to hold us the way we like to hold the community.
0: It's interesting you mentioned St. Louis. That's where we moved to Colorado from several years ago. Oh, funny. We had lived there for a dozen years. Um, our sons were born there. So there, there's plenty of history in our house tied to that city.
1: Oh, ah, fun.
0: So I'm sure we could go down that lane. Yeah. But we've got a lot of, <laughs> of great things to talk about. So I won't I won't bore people with that. <laughs> so I'm thinking community is a big piece of things. Mm-hmm. You know, from afar, that's what it looks like for you and your husband, Joel. He's worn many hats in civic leadership here in town. You've owned a number of businesses here in town. And I wonder what the word community means to you and what that feels and looks like to you.
1: Mm. You know, community, um, I think, is layered for me. There's the our local community, and then there's the our global community and everything that lives in between that, right, in between that space. And I think what I love, I know what Joel also, what we both love about BV is that um, – That local community is so prevalent and beautiful and powerful, and we've been able to be a part, I guess, of um, helping it come to life in a way over the past 20 years.
0: There's been a lot of change in that time, and you certainly have been a part of that when you've owned multiple businesses over the time on Main Street. Yeah. What kind of change have you seen in that time period? Just thinking of Maine, maybe in particular because— owning a business there. I mean, it's very busy and tourists, whatever has happened here, travel bureaus, some magazines, I don't know, somebody has gotten the word out. This is the spot.
1: Well, you know, so when we first moved here, the highway was thriving and Main Street was dying. There was Hmm. um, no activity on Main Street. And when we bought the roastery, Buena Vista roastery, um, it was working out of the jailhouse. It's now the slammer okay it's where it was operating out of we we bought it from um bill and cheryl mahaffey and it was just this little roastery with a two top table in it so at one point we moved across the street to where rock paper scissors is now and and expanded a little bit more of a cafe space we had a booth and a couple tables and and everything that those the cafe is right now was um a parking lot and so we decided to take out a loan and build today is the cafe and we actually had people coming in while we were building and saying we're really worried about you guys this town's dying what (laughs) are you doing you're going to throw all your money at this and it's you know you're going to lose it all and but it comes back to community we knew that community needed a place to gather and a place to come together and we also really believed in main street and that it could come back to life and there were some you know CKS was there. They had just moved from Johnson Village not that long ago. And
0: okay.
1: Asian Palette was opening. Um, Mothers used to be there. There were there were some core some core people, some core residents, business owners, community members, um, who were really committed to making Main Street come to life. And we all would meet on a regular basis and say, "What do we do? How do we bring people to town? What can we?" I started a music festival to yeah. try and draw people here and. Yeah, so I mean it it's hard to describe for people what what it was like. On Sundays, I think I shared with you before. On a Sunday, if there was one car parked on Main Street, it was like, Oh, well, who is that? What are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's really different now. <laughs> Very different.
0: For several months of the year, that would you know, at least that would be an impossibility. Yes, here yes. Now I wonder where the community involvement, that sense of things. I mean I guess this is sort of a separate line of question but the willingness to take a risk and a leap in order to participate and build Main Street and invest in the community where did that come from for you is there a family history of that or
1: no maybe na- being naive Okay <laughs> no, no I don't think so I'm just kidding um I just think it was a deep trust you know both Joel and I we met here in the 80s at AU Adventure Unlimited and this area just holds such a special place in our hearts. Um, and it was just a deep trust and a belief in kind of all that this community really is. And, and that, in yourselves. Yes.
0: Right, yeah. because yes. I see a, a a pattern there, it would seem. And, and we're gonna get into more of these things of your experience and, and the ways that you have put yourself out there. And, and I would say servant leadership and all kinds of ways that that takes a lot of belief in yourself.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So how was that instilled? Where does that come from, that courage or confidence or self-belief?
1: You know, I, from pretty much from the time I turned 16, I was kind of off on my own. You know, I, if I wanted to go to college, I had to pay for it. Whatever, okay. whatever my path was, I was creating it financially and such. So um, I learned to take leaps, okay. and I learned to trust that I could – If it didn't work, it didn't work, and that was okay. There was going to be something else. So, I also think it's just a big part of my personality and who I am. And Joel and I together can be a little dangerous in that way. (laughs) (laughs) We we both can leap together pretty far.
0: That's great. It's a great partnership. It is. You said that you met out here. You were teenagers at the time. Yes, we were. So, how did that come together? That that chance meeting, I guess, as teenagers.
1: Yeah. So we were working. We were both counselors at Adventure Unlimited. Okay. And um, for a couple summers. And we became friends and stayed friends and and then reconnected and got married in our 30s. So it was a oh, wow. long friendship. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Did you stay of, in touch
1: that whole time? We went through phases of staying in touch and, and then losing contact with each other and reconnecting. And yeah.
0: Okay. Was that one of those things where, you know, the younger kids at camp kind of see the two of you in a friendship, and of course they start whispering and talking, oh, ooh, they're together. <laughs>
1: I think that's always camp, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's everyone's camp experience, yeah.
0: But that, that's really interesting that then it was in your 30s. So yeah. it really was a long period, whether, you know, off and on and whatnot, but of knowing each other, getting to know each other. How, how did you reconnect then? Like what, what brought you together geographically or in whatever ways so that in your 30s it was something new and different? together
1: so he was living in ashland oregon i was in santa fe and we both ended up in denver at a friend's wedding and by uh, chance well we yeah i mean we both were invited to this wedding and we connected before are you are going to be there yeah oh, okay. it'll be great to see you so you knew it
0: was going to we happen knew we'd happen see then. each other well, yeah, yeah okay
1: but i will tell you there's there's a funny story to it my family always said like you're in love with joel <laughs> like, no i'm not you know no i've got all these other things going on no i'm good and uh My brother was living in Denver, and we went to go pick him up at the airport when he flew in from Oregon. And my brother looked at me, and he said, what's that look on your face? And I said, what look on my face? And he said, oh, my God, you love Joel. And I was like, oh, my God, you can see that on my face. (laughs) (laughs) And by the end of the weekend, Joel was like, what is going on? And that was kind of the beginning of it all.
0: That's funny. So he sweetly did not try to take that look and assume. (laughs) No, no. He wasn't quite as bored as my brother. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's a a beautiful um, reconnection and and story there. And, of course, now you have, I don't know, 20 years or something together.
1: Today's our 21st anniversary. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And there have been so many turns, pivots, moves. I I don't know. The right word, right? Exciting opportunities and things that you guys have created together. You've traveled the world together.
1: We have, Yeah.
0: Tell me about some of that. I know you mentioned global earlier, this idea of, okay, local and and community. But there's also a global aspect, I think, to who you two are, Mm -hmm. how you see and and move and work with the world. What is that? Where does that come from for you?
1: For me, it's that knowing um, that all of life is interconnected, right? So there's kind of an two sides of that, which I think are very beautiful. One, knowing that when we stay focused on our local community, we are having an impact on the global community, um, by shifting thought, shifting the way we move through the world, shifting the way we see each other, our interactions, our conversations, um, the thoughts we hold, what we hold in our hearts. And then when we move into that larger global community, um, It's bringing that with us, right? And understanding the importance of witnessing others, um, other cultures, other communities to further understand who we are and how we support what's everything that's happening in the world. And I know I shared with you that's a big part of, um, was a big part of our decision when we moved back to BV and it was so much smaller that. Um, Grace, our daughter was only six months old and we said, we're going to do it. And a part of that is, that's important to us is that we're going to get her out to see the world. So she's been to 14 countries with us and now she's 20 and off exploring stuff on her own.
0: That's wonderful. And as a parent and my wife and I have traveled extensively, we have two boys and it, and we have that similar sort of value and interest for our sons to travel and know that there is more than just whatever our local sphere would be. It happens to be here in Chafee County in central Colorado, but you know, wherever we would live, we want them to know there's more. And I wonder, I I would guess that you had that intention, you and Joel together for your daughter, that as we're doing this, as she's a child and she's growing up with this as a normal activity, right? A normal understanding. There's, there's more. Yeah. And now she's out in the world. She's a young adult. What, what do you see that, i don't want to put words on you but i i'm thinking pride um success <laughs> you know yeah
1: she, um yeah it's so i don't even know that i have words for for how incredible it is to see how grace has stepped into herself and how she is um how she's moving through the world and the self awareness that she is bringing with her, I guess, or how how self-aware she is as she moves through the world and her presence and her ability to step into other cultures, other experiences, and sit and observe and witness and honor. That to me is, you know, if that's the gift that we've given her, I can't think of a greater gift.
0: I'm going to go back to that phrase, local and global. And we have a great example here in this town. I think what you've already experienced and, and provided for Grace and what me and, and my wife are trying to do for our sons is in this small town that almost feels like a throwback to how maybe you and I both grew up, yeah. we could ride our bikes around, we could be independent, we could explore and, and grow as children rather than feel the need for safety to be so contained or whatnot. Like this, this yeah. town, young kids walk and ride around independently. Yes. Without people saying, where are your parents? I need to call family services on you.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And now, so she has that experience, and now also the global one. And it's, I mean, that, that just really touches, um, you know, really resonates for me, of course, because I'm describing that's that's how we're trying to also lead our children.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, I think that, um, I mean, I'm so grateful that she grew up with all that freedom. right? And I was a bit concerned that she wouldn't have the street smarts to travel on her own, right? How, you know, would that be a hard lesson for her someday? But she's got it. Yeah.
0: Good. Yeah. So you grew up in the Midwest, right? I
1: did, in Michigan.
0: Okay. I wonder what placed that, I don't know, seed or or bug for travel in you as a young, well, and you said at 16, yeah. on you're yeah. you're feeling this independence and this need to you know plot your own course and take responsibility for that. I also grew up in the Midwest. I've talked about it many times on the on the podcast in r- northeast rural Missouri, small town. So I was in Flyoverland. There were no TV shows that were centered around where you and I I think grew up. You yeah. know, it's it's New York, it's LA, yeah. Chicago. But there's a whole big world out there and I couldn't wait. I was curious. I wanted to see what led you to, to get out there and explore in these ways and to live in places like Santa Fe and and now Colorado. And I, I don't know how many countries you've been to, but I would guess it's many.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, like I said, when I turned 16, my, we were in Michigan, my grandparents were in Florida and I would get in the car on Friday after school and drive straight through to Florida to spend the weekend with my grandparents and then drive straight back in time for a class on Monday. It was (laughs) insane. Um,
0: I'm sorry, at what age?
1: 16. I know. I know now that we have kids, it seems so absolutely yeah. absurd, and I can't believe my mom was okay with the things that I did.
0: <laughs> that, that didn't compute for a minute, that, yeah. that, that that was what you were saying at that age. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's incredible.
1: Yeah. but So I've always had that. Um, I love road trips. I've always had that desire to, to see a lot and to travel a lot. But my dad was the one. He actually brought me to Colorado. Because he worked at Adventure Unlimited when he was a teenager.
0: Oh, wow. I
1: know. So the history here in the valley goes deep. Um, And I remember the first time I came out here, because he wanted to show me the ranches, I felt like I was coming home and these mountains. And it was so beautiful and humbling. And I remember... Leaving here after one summer and going back home, flying into the airport, and all my girlfriends came to pick me up at the airport, and they wanted to hear all about it. And what did I do? And it, was it amazing? And I told them about getting up early in the morning and saddling horses and being up in the mountains. And and they all quickly their faces changed. Like that's fun. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> you, did, you did that all summer, but it was a big part of it. And yeah, I think I think I. I mean, I know that my love of the mountains and the West really was a gift from my dad. Yeah.
0: Did you have inspirations before that? Like, had you been somebody who also had curiosity maybe in, I don't know, novels that were set here or photography and you'd see mountains or for me, things like watching the Olympics and winter Olympics and you'd see downhill skiing. And I, well, obviously I couldn't do that in flat Northern Missouri. Where is that happening? That's exciting. Like, were there influences like that as well?
1: Mm. You know, I photography for sure. Ansel Adams, and mm, yeah. I remember his black and white photography always spoke to me growing up. National Geographic, just some of, wherever I could find places to kind of disappear into other other areas, other um, settings than you know a suburb outside of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which I'm grateful that I grew up there. But yeah, there was just always this draw to be outside in nature.
0: Ansel Adams, he was the first photographer I knew by name. Yeah. And in fact, when I went to journalism school and I was there for photojournalism initially, and someone at the camera shop when I first showed up asked me, oh, who are your favorite photographers? Knowing I was from the journalism school and thinking I'm gonna rattle off some list of great photojournalists, and I said Ansel Adams. And I realized immediately then, I might not be in the right program. Like I was not thinking on the right line. I had no idea who photojournalists were, Yeah, but Ansel Adams Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I I love that work and it still, um, still, you know, has an impression on me for sure.
1: Me too. Me too. Beautiful stuff.
0: I want to talk about some of the work that you've done and, and some of this, you know, we've mentioned that there were businesses locally with this global idea. Some of the things you've done have been very directly related, you know, connected to people globally. 1% for women. Yeah. I'd like to hear about that. That was something you did for five years. Yeah. It was something about like that? seven years. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, which is interesting because lots of, you know, that seven year cycle, we say we have those, those universal cycles and it seemed to play out in my life quite a bit. Mm. Um, so I was working for an organization called savory Institute before that doing marketing and, um, was in charge of you know marketing and PR so every day I was the one that was reading all the news of the climate and everything that was happening everything that was impacting the planet and Grace was young at the time and I was putting her to bed one night and she started to cry and I said what's you know what's the matter and she asked me if the planet was gonna die before she did and I realized you know, half of my team was in Zimbabwe and I was on Skype that when they were, it was evening when they were waking up in the morning. So at night at the house, I was always on Skype calls with this team, with this part of my team. And she was always listening. She was always very present, sitting beside me asking questions. And so I realized I needed to do something um, that had a positive impact in the moment right? A lot of what I was doing felt important, but it was like, well, if we do this now, maybe we'll see a change in 20 years. And it was heavy. And I realized I was bringing that to myself, to my family, to my community. So I started 1% for Women. And the idea behind 1% for Women was to get local businesses to commit 1% of their net profit to women in agriculture around the world. And that was a beautiful thing. Some of, I mean, the Asian Palette, Eddie line you know, a lot of the local businesses stepped up and said, absolutely. And it was just through Kiva. They did microcredit loans. And I remember walking into Ediline um, one night and it was a off, off season. It was the winter and it was quieter. And the staff were sitting talking about who they were going to give the loan to that month. And I thought, this is really cool. If nothing else, that the conversation is happening in our town about like what woman they're going to invest in in Ghana or wherever it was to, to support for that month through through their work and through their business. And I loved that um, until, you know, I, I feel like as I learn more, I, you can see as you get older, I guess, just how everything's been stepping stones, right? And how everything comes together. And the house that we lived in forever on Sunflower Lane, you walked in the door and there was a, we built a greenhouse right off off the main entry. And I remember walking in one day and thinking, I can't, the plants are dying in there and I just don't even have it in me to keep one more thing alive. I can't do it. I I just can't do it. And and then I realized 1% for women is Beautiful and important. And if these women aren't whole and complete and taking care of themselves, the resources like here, here, are seeds, here's the pig these things are important, but but we're not still not getting to the root of what really needs to be changed and what really needs to happen. So that was my next pivot after that,
0: which was what
1: inward bound women, inward bound. That's kind okay. of the space that I'm holding now, and I have been since then. And it's really um, somatic awareness, embodiment work, understanding where we hold our experiences and our traumas in our bodies so we can understand and recognize the filter that we see the world through and the filter that the world experiences us through. And how, through that awareness, um, can we heal ourselves?
0: I want to come back to that. That is your current work, right? It is, yeah. So I want to come back to that after we've touched on some other things that are more back leading into that. Absolutely, yeah. How old was Grace when she, that night when you put her to bed, she's crying, she's feeling this?
1: I think she was probably six.
0: Okay. Right around six. So there are... I'm guessing some conversations, some, some real conversations that were happening in the household and she was aware. I mean, besides listening, hearing oh yeah, your conversations with colleagues, um, it, it's such a weighty thing. Of course, again, I've mentioned we have kids. These are things that come up. It's like, where, where are we headed here with the planet and with yeah. what we are leaving for you? How are we cultivating this and yeah. the path forward in a positive way? Is she involved in these things now? Is that something that has persisted as an interest or concern for her?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, like any teenager, she's not a teenager anymore, but she was up until a couple weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> um, like any teenager, she wants to carve her own path in life, right? So there's this tug and pull between wanting to explore more of kind of all the work that Joel and I have done for her whole life. And also, how does that, how does she make that her own? What does that look like? For a long time, she felt like she wanted to go into law um, because of that. She was at London School of Economics and Political Science last year and thought that that was her way or a potential road to creating powerful change. And I think since then, she's realizing the power of her words. She is a beautiful writer And exploring how she makes a difference using the things that she loves and the talents that she loves. But I would say at the core of everything she wants to do, it's how do I make a difference? How do I step into being a part of the change that needs to happen? So absolutely, it influenced her. And now she's in that exciting, amazing point in life where it's like, how do I take all that I know and all that my parents have shared and make it mine.
0: It sounds like there's a maturity and no pun intended, a grace that she carries that surely has been instilled in some way, whether she fully recognizes how or not from you and and your husband. So it sounds like she has a fantastic future that is, is unfolding. I'm wondering how, so you obviously have laughed a lot here in my couple of interactions with you. There's plenty of (laughs) smiles. There's a lightheartedness in that and ease. And I wonder how you got from those places where things felt so heavy and challenging. And we're talking about climate change. We're talking about how do we provide for women around the world to support themselves? And food is a big thing. Yeah, Um, Food security for people all over the world and all these things that you've been involved in. How do you manage to, I guess, deal with that, that the weight of it and the seriousness and the importance and what must touch your heart in a heavy way at times, and also then have this laughter and these smiles and the lightheartedness?
1: So I'm gonna share a story in answer to that question. I love that question. So I have been fortunate enough to spend a significant amount of time in indigenous communities and and with elder um, grandmas, indigenous grandmas. And there was part of some of the work that I was doing, I had a nonprofit for a couple of years called Madres Hijos. And it was working with migrant women and children at the border. So I would drive every month to the border of Arizona and Mexico. Driving down one time, I'm listening to the radio, and they're talking about the Colorado River Basin, right? And it's running out of water. And and Arizona especially is, you know, there there are swaths of it that are completely out of water and will be soon and blah, blah, blah. We all know the stories. Um, So I drove into, was staying in this little town called Patagonia, Arizona, and I pulled in and was you know, expecting to see the drought and, and that lack of water and, and what, everything that I had heard on the news. And I got in, checked into my place and went for a walk up this road, this dirt road. And as I'm walking, the butterflies were migrating through and they were everywhere. It was, I mean, I just was, this whole road was just filled with swarms of butterflies and the creek was running, even though it wasn't the time of year, the creek should be running and everything was green and alive. And I had this um, awareness of the fact that that was my reality. If I chose that to be my reality, if I chose to see that, then that was what the world could be. If I chose to live in the story that I had heard on the way down, then I was walking a different path. And I actually, when I got back to my place, I emailed a Hopi grandma who's a good friend. And I just said, you know, told her about my experience and her, she responded. It was a very sweet email, just that she was very proud of me because that was what her, the elders had been sharing forever. That how we choose to move through the world and see the world shapes the world. So if we live in the stories of the dread, and when we look outside, if we see um, the dead trees instead of acknowledging the ones that are thriving and, and blooming, that's that's the world we move. That's that is the world we perpetuate, and we feed the energy that then creates that reality. So, so I choose to. I choose to see it all. To honor it all, to not discredit the experiences of others or anything that they've gone through. And at the same time, try and hold everyone's inherent right to peace and joy and freedom.
0: That is something that I have to continue to practice. Mm. This idea of gratitude, perception, the ways that we can influence our energy and those then around us by choosing to to see what is positive and in, in moving us forward in, in the ways that we would like mm-hmm. rather than to focus on all the gloom. Yeah. It's challenging. It is. I feel like, well, <laughs> this is going to be a negative statement in itself to, <laughs> to suggest that I think many or most people really, really struggle with that, or maybe aren't even familiar with the possibility. Right. And, and for reasons that are understandable, perhaps from whatever their life experiences are.
1: You know, I was in the Amazon last June. I'm going back again in um, October. But I was with these two different communities, the Sapara and the Achuar. And the Sapara move through the world guided by the knowing of the neutral spirit. And the neutral spirit is simply that in nature, there is no right, wrong, good, or bad. All simply is. And since being shared, since that's been shared with me, since gaining, I guess, that awareness and that, that teaching, I really try to um, hold that in my heart as I listen to the stories of things happening right now, as I stand in front of people with opposing views, as I, you know, interact with my family, with my community, that if there is no right, wrong, good or bad, if all simply is, and we can, it, it neutralizes Right? It takes, it takes the um, divisiveness, I guess, out of what we're experiencing and allows me, at least, to look through things from a different lens a lens that allows me to say, like, yeah, I totally honor whatever has put you in this place, right? I, I understand that you've had experiences in life that, that have you standing very strongly where you are today. And. I know that we all have that ability for peace and joy and happiness. And and if I can hold that both at the same time without being Pollyanna, right? (laughs) that What does that do? What shift does that create?
0: A line that I often use, which comes from a story. I don't know if there's a a fancier, better word for that, but it's one of those stories that there's a moral to it. And the moral of this, which is the line I carry, is good, bad, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Something happens. We could assess it as bad. Maybe it's not going to be. Maybe that's the thing that saved you from something that feels much worse. Right. You know, ultimately it's that neutral position of, I don't know, life will continue to unfold. We'll continue to see what comes. Yeah. Because it's going to be the mix of all, you know, so many things all along the way. Yeah. I was going to ask you about Madre Zijos.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm curious about that work. I also do want us to be able to talk about Inward Bound. I'll let you have your choice there. Which way we carry this forward? Where do you feel like you would rather share right now?
1: I mean, it all flows together, right? So Madre Cijos really came to life because I was down in Sedona doing a story-sharing project. And a friend said, if you're this close to the border, you have to come see what's going on. And I went down and I and was amazed at what I saw. I had no idea what was happening just a couple states away from us. And without going into great detail, um, I knew I had to get involved. And so I started a nonprofit. I was actually on the the White House Immigration Task Force for the state of Arizona. I got deeply embedded in all of it very quickly. Um,
0: I'm sorry, what was it that you saw? What what led to these involvements?
1: So I went to Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument. I was in Ajo, Arizona, went into the National Monument. First thing I saw was the wall border uh, yep, yeah, on the border, how it was separating these indigenous the Tohono Odom, these this indigenous community was about to go through this sacred water um, lake pond that they that they had gone to for generations to do hold ceremony. And as I was driving out of um, from this water, Quito Paquito, on this dirt road, I saw two teenage girls carrying babies get stopped by border patrol and they got put in the trucks crying and it ripped my heart out of my chest. The next time I went down, I saw 15 people walking on the road and stopped and they had walked, they were from um, El Salvador. No, they're from Ecuador. Every time I went back, I saw groups of people and that group of 15, when I got out of the car, The look of terror, I met eyes with one of the other moms, one of the moms in the group, and the look of absolute terror and fear in her eyes as she saw me almost dropped me to my knees, right? I feel like I'm a pretty non-threatening person. And seeing, seeing in her eyes and in the entire group, the extreme measures that led them to bringing their family across, you know, horrific conditions To then stand on this dirt road in the middle of nowhere waiting to be picked up and taken to um, a holding, you know, facility and all of it really jarred me. And so I got involved and realized after a few years of doing it that my it was pulling me out of the work that I was doing with Inward Bound. It was making it harder for me to stay to take care of myself in all of it and thereby my ability to take care of others in this space I was trying to hold. So I went back into um, kind of recommitted to the inward bound work. How do I, how do we, I, I guess what I was saying with the neutral spirit, right? How do I do both? How do I support what's happening down at the border with the incredible organizations that I connected with and partnered with down there and do it in a way that honors everybody. And so now instead of, going down and actively participating the way I was. Now I'm going to be going down and and holding retreats for the humanitarian aid workers to give them the tools and help them kind of find a path so that they can stay in this work and not deal with the secondhand trauma as heavily as, as they have.
0: When you mentioned earlier about being Pollyanna, you know, if we were to, I think what you were suggesting, right, was if we were to just tell everybody, It's all butterflies and rainbows. Just smile. It doesn't matter what you've been through. Just smile, right? And, of course, (laughs) you're saying that's not what I'm trying to do. And it occurs to me that that's coming from a place of privilege, Mm -hmm. privilege of our experiences to not have to be what those people are going through. If they're coming up by foot, by Mm -hmm. hopping trains, by all kinds of means from Ecuador or wherever. Yeah. And they're willing to risk their lives, their families, their babies, everything. There's a reason for it. It's not something in my mind that we should so lightly dismiss as criminal to us, yes. as harmful to us. There's a reason, and there there's a tremendous amount of experience in that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's privilege that would allow us to be a Pollyanna sort of figure and and just say, oh, it can't be that bad. Just smile.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, it's.
0: They need more than that from yeah,
1: us. Yes, they do. And and it really only takes a day of standing, you know, in one of the facilities down there and interacting and seeing seeing the families, seeing the individuals moving through to understand that nobody wants to leave their home. Right. Migration isn't a very, isn't a choice like, I'm going to go to the States, it's going to be better there, and it's going to be amazing. Even if it was, that should be okay. Right? And I guess that's where it starts to play out. It's like, these conversations of, it's not it's not that bad, they should stay home. Or I can tell you, it is really bad. and, And many of them can't stay home, right? It's not a choice. But even if it was, even if someone's living in another country said, I'd like to see what it's like in the States. They There should be a process for them to come and see what it's like in the States. We shouldn't, it shouldn't be so difficult. We shouldn't be so protective of our make-believe borders and boundaries.
0: Right. I have a really weird analogy coming to mind. It's because it's an un- totally unrelated conversation that I've had with my sons recently, and, and we were talking about 9-11. Mm. So more than 20 years ago, and this experience with the buildings, and as Any of us who were at least adults at the time would remember all kinds of details. And and one of those things that that they brought up was people jumping out of the building from very high up. Wow. And again, a a very weird analogy for me to make here, except it's such an extreme condition that I think those people felt they had no choice but to exit however they could. Mm -hmm. And... I think there's a connection in terms of when people are in a place that is so dangerous, is so fraught with risk to their survival and the survival and well-being of their family. Yeah. That they're willing, again, to to travel maybe thousands of miles. Yeah. And through very dangerous conditions and then cross the border at a country where there's so much contention politically around it. Yeah. And danger for them to be here. And there is no dream life waiting for them. It's just one where they hope they can maintain some level of safety, even while knowing that to some extent they're kind of hunted here Yeah, by the government and the system and law enforcement and politics.
1: Yeah, well, and it's interesting having this conversation because I know um, some of your listeners, right, are going to feel like, oh, they're, they're, there's going to be people on both sides of this because it's a very hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is another reason conversations like this are another reason that I I guess it kind of threw me back into the inward bound work because I realized how many times I got into conversations with people who couldn't hear it who didn't want to hear it and the necessity for all of us to understand the filters that we hear things with and the filters that we experience the world through and how we bring those to every conversation it's so important like if if somebody's triggered by what we're talking about. You know, I would invite them to figure out where where they are in their body right now, where they're feeling it, where they're feeling the tension, where they're feeling the anxiety from what we're talking about. And then notice as they move through the day, how often they occupy that part of their body. And I think they'll probably find that that's where they hold a lot of their traumas. And so when we get triggered by things, especially experiences of other people, right, Everyone, I keep saying this, but it's so true. Everyone has an inherent right to peace and joy and freedom. So when we're triggered by someone else trying to find that and trying to hold that space, why? Why? What's What's it bringing up for us that we haven't processed, that we haven't dealt with? I think they're just. it's just all really important stuff.
0: Awareness is so essential in that and, and the practice of all of that, which I think is key to your inward bound work, right? It's going inward. It's, it's, it's focusing on ourselves rather than whatever emotions we might aim at someone else. Yeah. Uh, you are also a certified yoga teacher, things like that. I, I would guess that that plays a role in, in how you have made connection within yourself and how you look at, you're talking about embodiment and, and where these things are, where we're carrying these pains in our bodies as a source of understanding ourselves and, and doing that work. What is that the current work right now, if you can even summarize that with Inward Bound and in what you're doing?
1: So I published a book this past year called Leading from the Feminine, um, which is kind of a guide that takes the reader through really what my work has been up, like a, a shortened version, right, of, of tools and skills and, and a lot of what I've been sharing today. I'm I'm working on a second book um, that has more to do with water and women and the consciousness of the planet. And my work right now is really focused on honoring the indigenous communities that I've been a part of, understanding the big role that they've played in not only my worldview, but my ability to understand the impact I have on the world simply by how I move through the world and the space that I hold, and so I've I'm opening up, leading journeys um, with other women into the Ecuadorian Amazon. So a lot of a lot of the focus of inward bound right now is continuing to share these tools and these practices through writing, um, and then actually bringing people to the places that have had a huge impact in my life for them to have their own experience and see what it opens up in them and and help others stand stronger in their purpose and a knowing of what they bring to this moment
0: it's worth noting that that book has has received a number of honors so you don't have to go into detail there but i want people to know that it's being read and appreciated and and regarded um for the the contents and and Well, not just of the book, but really of your life and what it is that you have to share through these, um, these journeys yourself and and experiences and practices and, you know, everything you've brought to it. Yeah. Thank you. I think that travel is, is such a key way and getting out into these places that you're talking about is such a key way to develop that compassion and that understanding and to let down some of the guard of what I thought I understood. You know, what I think, I think, I think. Yeah. Oh, it's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, Connection and purpose seem to be strong threads through all of your work. Yeah. That sounds right? Yeah, it does. Fair? Yeah. I wonder how you identified purpose. And well, actually what we've talked about, if we, if we describe it as, say, a serial entrepreneurship or a serial mm-hmm. creativity, and you've, you've described windows of time. Okay, I had several years here with this. And then there was something that felt like, okay, this is a natural coming to a pivot point. Yeah. And I'm going to go in this direction. And there have been a number of those things. And I wonder how you've identified those moments, what nugget to take up and what seed to, to cultivate. And when is it time to maybe let it go mm-hmm. and move into another space? Mm-hmm. Ha- have you figured out clearly for yourself how you go about that process in, in determining those those changes in your life, those paths?
1: Um, that's such a good question. So I mean, I know I definitely am aware of when things have, are nearing the end of their cycle, right? Like 1% for women, that was very obvious for me. Madres um, hijos was obvious for me um, in different ways, right? And, and often what I, I think what I do in those times when I start to question the work, question what I'm doing, is I start to pay greater attention. Like, okay, so what if it's not this, then what is it? and what's the next piece that's going to open up um, that's gonna show me what's next. Now Madre Se was a little different because I started to get physically sick from that holding all of that um, for those years and it was it was taking a toll. And so when I stepped out of that work, that was hard to leave. And there was a lot of guilt in that because it felt like privilege. To be able to say, I'm getting sick, this is really hard on my body, and I'm going to stop, right? That's all privilege, right? <laughs> and, and so right, that, so yeah. that was a hard one. When um, so
0: many people can't leave behind what what that trauma or stress is and the distress is in their bodies. Exactly.
1: So, so I had to. I guess a lot of it, maybe the maybe the best answer I have to your question right now is I do the work, right? I turn inward and I understand where I'm carrying these things, why they're hard for me. And without turning away from them and moving away from something, I start to understand, okay, I'm not holding the right space in this work, right? Going down to the border every month wasn't the right space. I still want to be a part of that and support that. What's the space I am meant to hold? And I have to go inward to find that. And and where I've ended up with that is I'm taking the work that I do that I'm meant to do and I'm bringing it down there and I'm supporting those who are present every day, and it's it's a part of their um, their trajectory and their purpose.
0: With just the couple minutes that we have left, I wanna ask why the focus on women in a number of these areas? What is important to you about empowering women and, and shining light in these areas for them to, to go inward and, and to strengthen and, and find their purpose and lead their lives?
1: Yeah, for me, it's always been about the women I think it's just a part of my deeper calling. How do I hold sisterhood is really important to me. Um, how do I move through the world in a way that honors, that honors my sisters? A lot of the work that I've done, taking deep dives into uh, all these you know, different stories, Mary Magdalene, all the different time periods um, in life, I really feel like what we are experiencing right now is because we've lost the voice of the feminine and that a, we're at a critical moment in history where the imbalance that's happening in the world is because of that lost feminine wisdom and so i think that has been a part of my calling and my journey since i was little how do i find that in myself and then how do i help others discover that men and women discover that in themselves
0: i was just thinking with men too because you know as it said there's feminine and masculine energy in all of this yes and So men, having, you know, cut themselves and cut each other off from that softer side of things and being that more full and whole human that can be all the things we think of with masculine in positive ways and allow for that softer expression and experience of things as well. So yeah, feminine reaching across, you know, the whole spectrum of of humanity.
1: Absolutely. It's so important.
0: I'm going to ask you one sort of speed round question just for fun. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of um a lot of big and, and important um and meaningful things here, but you mentioned having started the the music festival yeah. many years ago, and I think living near Motown might have had some influence on hey, music is a thing. Yes. So, let's say what what calls to you now for music um today, lately. Whatever it is. I mean, and and do you tend to go toward Contemporary stars—I mean, Taylor Swift, I guess, would would count as that, even though she's been around for some years. Or say vintage classics, which I'm afraid for both of us, for me anyway, is a bit alarming. What gets rated as as classic now,
1: <laughs> or what's be- I know, <laughs> I totally agree. It makes you feel really old really fast. You know, I love kind of singer songwriter folk music anymore, and okay. and bluegrass and stuff that kind of settles me into my body instead of pulls me out. Although I will say. Um, I've been waking up every morning and having my own little dance party which has been great and that's just kind of whatever comes on Spotify.
0: Is that your way of of starting the day with some joy and, and lightness and even just you know gets the heart rate up just a little bit?
1: It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, my dogs dance with me. It's pretty crazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's been great talking with you, Lori. I appreciate so much of what you're doing, the work in the world and for talking and sharing with us here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun.
0: Okay. That was Lori Benson. If our conversation here today sparked curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at We, we invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any platform that uses that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to KHN 106.9 FM, our community radio partner in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorby for graphic and web design. To Andrea Carlstrom, director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment. And to Lisa Martin, community advocacy coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening. And remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, share stories, make change.